Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Go and have a seat and uh, get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus. I thought that final song is quite appropriate uh, to be reminded of the reality that our God is, in fact, a mighty fortress. And we will see that actually and need to be reminded of that in uh, the text this morning as we walk through uh, Exodus chapter 5. And uh, just tell you right here at the outset, this is a really, really heavy, weighty passage that we're moving towards and back into our sermon series on the book of Exodus. And so as we move towards the text, Exodus chapter 5, let me just begin by asking this question. Um, Don't raise your hand, but just uh, engage this between yourself and the Lord. Have you ever struggled with, have you ever wrestled with, have you ever questioned God's plan for your life? Right? I mean, most of us have been there in some way, shape, or form. Have you ever wondered or questioned why God allowed or did not allow something? Why God prevented or did not prevent something? Why God stopped or God um, started? God took away something in your life. And you might be sitting here going, man, this got really deep really quick. I was thinking about this. Just this week, I was reminded uh, when I was in college, I spent two summers in West Africa. And... um, uh, West Africa gave me a parting gift uh, after my second time there, and I got home. It was about this time of the year. It was actually right around, it was in September, it was right after the September 11 attacks, and I realized that I had malaria. And um, <clears throat> that was kind of an entertaining and intriguing time to be diagnosed with a disease like that uh, in our country. Uh, but one of the things that was fascinating, just utterly fascinating to me, is, is the, the, the church that I was at there in college, uh, so many of the elders and the pastors and even this guy who was really like a mentor to me, they all would come to the hospital and, you know, they're all coming to pray for me and check in on me. But all of them, all of them, in some way, shape, or form, were asking me, are you mad at God? Mike, are you mad at God? And I, I, I think... I think they struggled with this idea to think, well, you were serving God. You were doing something that was good, and now something bad happened to you. Which, just in case you're wondering, is how the whole Bible plays out, okay? Um, But I think what they were worried about is that as I lay there in that hospital bed and maybe ran that narrative out, that I was going to start asking questions of God, and I was not going to like the answers that I got, you know, those questions like, God, why? And God, what's going on? And God, are you still at work? And the truth is, the text this morning is going to lead you and I to some really difficult questions of ourselves and some really difficult questions of our God. And so as we do this, in fact, before, before we get to the text, let me just maybe encourage us in this way. This is where, as, as believers, we have to be really honest about the scriptures. And we have to read the Bible. We have to read the scriptures honestly. Like, I I don't know where Christians came up with the idea that, that if I were to follow Jesus, that that would make me happy, healthy, and wealthy, that, that everything would just play out beautifully in my life. And I would live this long, full life where my marriage was flourishing and I never got sick. And it was just this perfect, idyllic reality. I mean, how'd that play out for the apostles? 
These guys all died martyrs' deaths. I mean, you go to the book of James, for example, and uh, after James introduces himself as a slave of Jesus, that should have been a clue, right? But you get to chapter 1, verse 2, and he says this, Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. Not really sure I want to keep reading that book, right? And so you flip over to the next book, and you get to First Peter. What's First Peter all about? Right? It's about suffering. Why? Because the reality of sin in the world and the reality of following Jesus ensures us, and it makes unmistakably clear to us, that our lives will be filled with seasons of struggle and disappointment and hardship. Now, don't hear me say that every single moment of your life will be characterized in this way. But here's what I also want you to hear from me very, very clearly, that your life and my life will not be absent of these things either. And so here's what I think God's word is pointing and pressing us towards. Here's the argument I want to make for the whole of our time together this morning. It's this. It's that God is setting up his plan in the midst of disappointment and struggle. God is setting up his plan in the midst of disappointment and struggle. Let us come now to the text, Exodus chapter 5. And we'll read the whole of the chapter. would encourage you to follow along. Here's what God's word says to us. Right on the heels of the people being so excited about what God was doing and bringing Moses back. Here's what we see. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went out and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And so excited in the sense of God is leading us out. And now the entire narrative turns on a dime right here. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. See, I'm already backpedaling a little bit, can't you? Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And thus ends the exchange between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. And then notice what um, the author of Exodus points out to us here at the beginning of verse 6. The same day. Right, that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. And here's what he's saying to them. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it. And notice this next line, pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh just called God a liar. That's what just happened there. Verse 10. So the taskmaster in the form of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, which stands in stark contrast to what Moses and Aaron were saying in verse one, when they were saying, thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day is when there was straw. 
And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? I mean, this is just brutal. What's happening here? And the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. The finality of verse 18. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your, in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Whew. That is a heavy text. This is a weighty and difficult text. And so to the best of our ability with unflinching honesty, I want to walk us through this and draw out some of the implications here for us as the people of God, But before we do that, I think we would be wise to stop and to ask God to give us wisdom and insight as to how to see and hear and understand what God would have for us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll proceed. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your great kindness towards us. God, we thank you for your word that chronicles for us this account in Exodus 5 and even the difficulty and the hardship that was in front of your people. God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would understand the weight and the fullness of all that you have for us here in Exodus 5. Uh, God, not only for us, I pray for Nathan Sherman. I pray for Christ Church of Albuquerque. Thank you for um, this brother in the Lord. And as they meet later today, we pray that you would be at work in that body of believers and accomplishing your purpose within them. And Lord, would you just be at work within us? Give us wisdom and understanding as we walk through this. And we just pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, the title of the message is Dark Days. Dark Days. And this is a dark and difficult text. Uh, These are dark days in the nation of Israel's history. And maybe you find yourself here this morning and you're uh, finding yourself in the midst of some really dark days. And and God has a word for you. God's going to speak to you today through his word. Now, as I've already mentioned, the, the, the main idea, the theme of what we see going on in the text, God is setting up his plan in the midst of disappointment and struggle. And three things, three things that I want us to see here in the text. And you notice there's really three different um parts of the story that we're seeing here. You have verses one through five, where Moses and Aaron are uh, speaking with Pharaoh 
In verses 6 through 21, we have Pharaoh's response to that and just really the wicked and cruel and harsh treatment of the people. And then at the end of the chapter, you have Moses uh, who is engaging with the Lord. And so that's how we've broken this up. Uh, Three things this morning around this idea of dark days and God setting up his plan in the midst of disappointment and struggle. Here's the first, look at the first five verses. It's this, it's dark days, part of dark days uh, show up uh, when there is a questioning of God's identity and leading. There's a questioning of God's identity and leading. And what I want to do is I really want to fixate on verse 2 and and the question and the statements that Pharaoh is making with respect to the Lord. Because this this question and this statement is not only significant for our time here this morning in Exodus 5, but this will actually drive the next number of chapters in the book of Exodus that God is going to answer that question for Pharaoh over and over and over again. And he says this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, now, now I, I understand that most of us look at that and we go, that guy's a moron. Like what, what is wrong with him? And yet I would suggest to you this morning that you and I are more like Pharaoh than we would like to think. And there's some things that are going on in Pharaoh that are going on inside of us as well that we have to be honest with in our own questioning of God's identity and leading. But let me just say a couple things uh, historically about how uh, the people of Egypt would have understood Pharaoh and his person that begins to at least give us some insight into this. First of all, the, the Egyptians believed, um, and Pharaoh certainly believed, uh, but it was believed <clears throat> that Pharaoh, that, that not just this Pharaoh, but all Pharaohs were a god. And, and so part of what you see happening here with Pharaoh in this question, this isn't simply an act of ignorance. This is not even him being defiant. This is very much a power showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And one of the ways that we see this playing out is around the people of Israel. Because God is, is, is arguing, these are my people, release them. And notice what Pharaoh does, right? He is gonna, he's going to treat the Israelites in a particular manner. And what he's saying in that is that the people of Israel actually belong to him because he is God. He has positioned himself in the place of God so that he thinks the people of God are his. This is a good point to just pause for a moment because I think it's healthy for us to come back to this reality time and again. Everything, everything, everything in the world and in the universe belongs to God. It's not yours. It's not mine. All of it belongs to God. Now, that's not explicitly in this text, but it is explicitly in a number of other biblical texts. So, for example, 1 Chronicles 29 tells us this, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Deuteronomy 10 tells us to the... To, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 89 says the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. Even in the book of Exodus, just a few chapters from now, after the plague of hail comes down, Moses tells Pharaoh, I'm going to stop this so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Everything, everything, everything belongs to God. Now that's a good reminder for you and I. That everything that you and I have and everything that we are ultimately belongs to God. So your money, your possessions, your spouse, your children, your talent, your intellect, everything, all of that, it is not yours. It is on loan to you from God. And you and I will give an account for all of those things when we finish our lives. But I I pause to, to press this a little bit because it is helpful for us in this way. How you and I think about possessions 
is very much reflective of how you and I think about God's place in our life. So if I recognize that everything belongs to God, that all of it is his, and that I live in submission and surrender to that, well, that's just it. I live in submission and surrender to him. I come under him as the authority and and having full power in my life. But if I'm fighting this and I'm thinking, well, no, this is mine and this is mine and you can't have this, right? It, It demonstrates that I don't really come under the fullness of God's authority and all that he has for me. See, here's, this is what's really going on. This is where I think this is really helpful for you and I when we ch- begin to connect ourselves to Pharaoh and going, you know, I, there's probably ways in our life where we question God's identity and leading more than you and I would be comfortable thinking about. Because that's what this is really about here. It's this wrestling through this question. Do I recognize that everything that I am and everything that I have belongs to the Lord? Am I fighting or pushing against that? In fact, notice a few things that we see showing up in Pharaoh's statement that I think are are good questions for us to wrestle through and figure out whether or not you and I are questioning God's identity and leading in our lives. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I mean, Pharaoh's rejecting this premise So let's try to connect this to our life here for a moment. First of all, notice this. First of all, we see this in Pharaoh, that he denies God has any claim on his life. He denies that God has any claim on his life. He's ignorant of God's identity, but he is also ignoring God's authority. Say, well, who's that guy? Why should I listen to him? And so he rejects that God has any authoritative claim in his life. Now, loved one, let me just ask you this. Does God have the rightful claim on your life? Do you serve in submission and obedience to him? Or do you find yourself pushing against this and and I'm pursuing this delusional reality of autonomy in my life? I don't want to be subservient. I don't want to be in submission. Um, I will go on my own. I will come under God when it works for me or when it's convenient or when it's advantageous. But hey, you know, some of this other stuff I'm going to pass on. Pharaoh denies God has any claim on his life. Secondly, Pharaoh puts himself in the place of God. Specifically, what we see happening here is that he is making the final decision. Ever put yourself in the place of God? You ever, you ever said, I will be the final arbiter of what is right or wrong. I will have the final say on how things will work out. I will hold the power in all the decision making. It's getting a little too close to home, isn't it? All of a sudden we're going, yeah, okay, Pharaoh's not as different from us as maybe we thought he was. Right? We're going to put ourselves in the place of God and we're going to be the one to decide whether or not this is the case. I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I'll not let Israel go. That's what he's saying. I'm going to make this call. I don't know this guy. Here's what it is. Puts himself in the place of God. Thirdly, he's resistant towards God. He's fighting against God's plan and intention, ironically enough, all the while, while he does not know God. So he's rebelling against a God that he does not even know. Now, this is kind of like, this is kind of like, uh, you, you ever met someone that, um, that they want to deny God even exists, but then who do they blame when things go bad? <laughs> right. They blame God. It's like, well, it's his fault. And it's like, wait, 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 you can't blame someone who doesn't exist for the problem in your life. Right. And, 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 and if you've been around people like this, you've seen this It's like, no, no, you got to own that one for yourself. You don't get to pin your screw ups on someone that you say doesn't exist over here when things are going well for you. 
It's kind of what we, it's the same attitude that we see in Pharaoh. He's resistant towards God. And we see that in people's lives. It's like, why are you mad at someone that doesn't exist? You can't be mad at him. He doesn't even exist as far as you're concerned. Resistant towards God. Finally, this and this final one, I think, is really helpful for us. Not uh, really helpful for us, not only in understanding what's happening in chapter five, but I think really gives us some good wisdom and insight even into our lives today. Uh, some of the struggles and difficulties and hardships that we face as followers of Jesus in general, and it's this idea right here that Pharaoh is malicious toward God's people. He's malicious towards God's people. Now, this is really, really important for us to to see this. Who becomes the object of Pharaoh's wrath? It's not Moses and Aaron. It's not this supposed Lord uh, who's, who's coming against Pharaoh. It's God's people. They become the ones who suffer because of this. So he's saying, who is the Lord? And, and really, in an ironic sense, God is going to answer over and over again. He's going, oh, you're about to find out. <laughs> you're about to find out, buddy. But who is the Lord? See, this is a question that, that people will wrestle with at various levels. Maybe you're even here today and you're wrestling with this or you're, you're going, I, I don't know. Maybe you're saying it in a mocking tone uh, like Pharaoh. Um, maybe you thought you knew and, and, and you're being challenged in some areas or ways. Here's, here's what you got to know. A day is coming. A day in, is coming where every single person with ease will be able to answer this question because they will know with surety and confidence. In fact, what the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us in multiple places that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Right? Isn't that awesome? In Philippians 2 and Romans 14, which is um, coming out of Isaiah 45. See, a day is coming when everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the question, listen, the question isn't whether or not it's true. The question isn't even whether or not you will say that. The question around this is will you find yourself willingly falling to your knees and saying, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. Or will you find yourself being forced into that position? Because everyone will find themselves in that place. Even Pharaoh will find himself on his knees confessing the authority and the supremacy and the divinity of Jesus. Malicious towards God's people, who is the Lord? These dark days, this questioning of God's identity and leading. Notice this secondly, and really the bulk of the text here. Uh, Today, starting in verse 6, running through verse 21, we see Pharaoh's response to this. And and really, I just put it under this heading here, suffering under harsh treatment. Suffering under harsh treatment. And there's just this series of harsh and cruel treatments that are issued from Pharaoh to the people of Israel. And and here's what we can't do. We can't look at this text and go, well... Um, okay, here you go. Uh, don't, you don't oppress your workers and make sure you give them straw to make bricks with. Go in peace. You're loved. I mean, that's not what's happening here. There's a much deeper spiritual reality and speaking to some really deep and pointed aspects of our life. 
And so what I want to do is I want to treat this section in totality and just this, this whole uh, sense of the harsh treatment and suffering that God's people find themselves under and draw a few conclusions and reflections for us that I think will, will be helpful but also very challenging. First of all, make note of this. Hear me. Loved ones, hear me when I say this. God's people will encounter suffering. I mean, you look at this text. And with unflinching honesty, you and I can say God's people will encounter suffering. I mean, this is a brutal section of text to read. At at times, it's just hard to read. You find yourself cringing and, and just being like, that was awful. And it, it only becomes more disappointing when we put it into the context of what has happened. Right, like, look back to the end of chapter 4. Moses has come back, and, and, and he had met with Aaron. They come back, right? And so they, they go into the elders of, of Israel, and, and they're really excited. Like, hey, you know, Moses had this word from the Lord, and I, I saw God in a bush, and he gave me these signs. And, and you can almost see, like, the elders initially like, okay, yeah, not totally sold on this yet. Right. And so, so then, but, but then what happens? He's like, here, let me show you some things. And he throws his staff down and becomes a snake. And he's like, but check this out. And he reaches down. I'm going to grab by the tail. I'm like, no dummy. Don't do this. Like, no, check it out. Boom. And it becomes a staff again. And they're like, whoa, okay. That's kind of impressive. And sticks his hand into his cloak and pulls it out. And it's leprous. And they're like, Whoa, wait a sec. This is, this is going backwards. He's like, no, check it out. Sticks it back in. And it's, and it's um, healthy again. And, and he's telling them, God has sent me Because he's going to deliver all of us. And so look at what it says at the end of chapter 4. They bowed their heads and worshipped. And this excitement and this anticipation. And after this centuries of slavery and centuries of being oppressed. God is finally going to deliver them. And yet what do we see? Things don't get better. They get harder. They don't get better. They get harder. What? What? And yet the Bible is permeated with this reality. We could run to so many different places in the scriptures where we see this bore out as true. You go to the prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel who prophesied so faithfully and yet saw such little fruitfulness. You think of David running for his life for roughly 15 years after he'd been anointed king being chased by Saul. You think about how the people of Israel even ended up in, it, ended up in Egypt with Joseph being sold into slavery. You have Paul's account in 2 Corinthians 11 where he's talking about being beaten and imprisoned and, and stoned and uh, shipwrecked and adrift at sea and all these other things. And yet maybe the most concise statement on this, maybe the most bottom line, if you will, statement on this in the scriptures comes from Paul to Timothy right before Paul is um, killed for his faith. And he says this, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you hear that? I mean, that's right out of the biblical text. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no qualifiers here. It's just straight up truth. Like if we're going to do this, it's going to be hard. And if that was true for everyone throughout the biblical story, why would it be any different for us? In fact, let me just make a couple of notes couple important observations for us here in terms of this idea of God's people will encounter suffering. First of all, 
This is happening under God's watchful eye. It's happening under God's watchful eye. He doesn't miss this. It's not lost on him. It didn't slip past him. He sees this. And and it's important for us to know this because it's tied to this next observation here. That God does not shield his people from the consequence of sin. Do you hear that? God does not shield his people from the consequence of sin. Now, if you have this wrong view of God, that God is this bitter, uh, old, cynical, vindictive, vengeful old man uh, who's just looking for ways to squash people like you and I would squash a bug, then you're going to run to the wrong place with that last statement that God doesn't shield his people from the consequence of sin. Here's what I am saying with that. Let Let me qualify this here. When you and I are saved, right, when we turn from sin to uh, salvation through Christ alone, um, what, what, what happens is we're spared from the wrath of God. The wrath of God being God's just punishment upon us, that we would be separated from God, that we would be condemned, um, we'd be condemned by God for the sin in our life. We're spared from what is rightfully ours. We're spared from the wrath of God that we deserve when we rebelled against God. But God does not spare us from the natural consequences of sin in our lives. So let me try to illustrate this. Let's say you were to lie to your parents, which of course I'm speaking hypothetically now because that would never happen to any of us here. Okay, if you were to lie to your parents, you're spared from the wrath of God. Right? You're not going to be alienated from God for all of time because of that. But mom and dad probably aren't going to trust you like they used to. There's a natural consequence for your sin. Let's say you cheat on your taxes. You you will be spared the wrath of God, but you're probably going to prison or paying a fine. Say you were to get in your car and go speeding up and down Southern at 65 where the speed limit is 40. You sinner. (laughs) Let's just say you did that. Now, if you get pulled over by the police officer, you're not going to get you're spared from God's wrath, but you're probably getting a ticket. Now, here's where I think in the church in the last 50, 60 years, we have so, we've just failed. We've just failed to communicate this truth. And we have to be really, really honest about this because if not, we get really sideways in a hurry on this. And so here's, when I look out, here's what I've seen, what we've done in the last 50, 60 years in the church, and it has created all kinds of chaos and confusion and just havoc, is we have pitched the gospel. We have sold the gospel as this magic pill, as this silver bullet. If you will just pray this prayer. If you'll just say these words, then Jesus will come into your life and he'll make you happy and healthy and wealthy and you'll have this flourishing marriage and your job will be amazing and you'll be rich and you're never going to get sick and your kids are going to be perfect and all you have to do is just say these words and all this magic happens. Like where, where in this book do you read that? It's not, let me just, it's, it's not in here. Let me, I can help you with that. It's not in here, right? But it's like, where does this come from? 
And so, so we, we sell this false gospel. I, I think in this idea of like, well, we want more people to believe. They're not really believing the gospel. They're believing this false gospel. And then what happens? Reality sets in and life is hard and people suffer and struggle and there's difficulty and there's hardship. And now instead of going, well, yeah, I knew this is what was coming. They're going, well, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what you told me it would be like. This isn't the gospel that I thought was going to play out. See, we're sold a false gospel, and then we have this expectation of a false life. Following Jesus is hard. God's people will encounter suffering. Jesus is not this magic genie. You know, like if you were to watch, you know, those infomercials, like this, this, this super cheesy spiritualized version of this. Hey, for four installments of 1999, you can be the perfect Christian. All you got to do is say these words and poof, all your problems go away. That's trash. That's trash. Let me just, let me just try to summarize it like this. Jesus doesn't call us to come and be better. Jesus calls us to come and die. God's people will encounter suffering. Notice this secondly, around this idea of um, verses 6 through 21 and suffering under harsh treatment. Part of what we see going on here is that the slavery that the people of Israel find themselves in is a depiction of our sin. The slavery is a depiction of our sin. It's a type. We've, we talk about the theological term of typology, right? It, it, it's a model. Um, it, it's a picture. It's a type. It shows us that this slavery is, is a picture, an illustration of our sin. Now, what's fascinating, what's fascinating about what happens here, that is as soon as things head south for the nation of Israel, what do they do? They go and they run to Pharaoh to save them. I mean, it's mind-boggling. The very person who is oppressing you and creating the havoc and the issues in your life is the very one that you look to save. Well, first of all, he can't save you, and he's the very reason that you're suffering. And you look at that, and you're like, what a bunch of fools. Like, who would do that? Well, you and I do that. We do the very same thing. When we run from sin to sin to free us from sin. We're as crazy as the Jews are because we do the very same thing. We look to our sin and not to Jesus to save us. So I have sin in my life. What do I do? I appeal to my pride or to my self-sufficiency or whatever it may be. Like, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be convinced of this or I'm going to prove that I'm worthy. All the while, the whole point is you can't free yourself. You can't do it. We're slaves to what masters us. So the angry man, the man, who, the man or woman who struggles with anger, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be angry. No, you're going to become a volcano is what's going to happen. Eventually, you're just going to erupt. One who's given to lust and I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. And, and come on, we know how that goes. It never, it never works like that. I'm just going to try harder and I'm going to overcome this. No, all you do is fail miserably. But then instead of being honest about it and bringing that into the light and getting into community and having people walk with you, what do we do is we just hide and we sink deeper and deeper into the pit with that. Whether it be 
driven by self-pleasure, fulfillment, a gossiping tongue. I'm like, doesn't matter, man. You just sin is sin, right? And people here are mastered by Pharaoh in the same way that you and I are mastered by our sin. Here's what you got to understand. In the same way that the nation of Israel cannot free themselves, but desperately need God to intervene on their behalf. It is true for you and I that you and I cannot rescue ourselves from our sin, but we need God to intervene on our behalf. Now, this whole thing about slavery as a depiction of our sin would be utterly crushing and defeating if we couldn't run to the cross with this, right? Could you imagine me talking about this and be like, all right, well, that's all for this week. Go and be loved. That's awful. There's no good news in that. But that's not the end of the story, is it, right? We get to run to the cross. We get to realize that we're freed through Jesus. Our tagline for this series, God calls us out of sin and bondage and into relationship with him because he gives us a hope to overcome this sin. Slavery is a depiction of our sin. Suffering under harsh treatment, God's people will encounter suffering. Slavery is a depiction of our sin. Here's the third thing. And you got it, loved ones, you got to hear me on this. You got to hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. God is working out his plan. God is working out his plan. Are you with me on this? Remember at the beginning of Exodus, we gave out these little half sheets here uh, that overviewed um, the book of Exodus. And so we have this kind of sequential phrase that we've come back to repeatedly already and will continue to do so. Um, but God is working out his plan. God's, uh, God, God has a plan. God's plan is a good plan. God is working out his plan. And then this next line here is where we tend to get hung up. We tend to get hung up on God's plan rarely plays out the way that we think it will. Right? God's plan rarely plays out the way that we think it will. And yet what I need you to know, even in the midst of Exodus 5 and all of just this gritty, gut-wrenching, visceral realities that are unfolding on the people of Israel. What I need you to know is that God is working out his plan. That God is a good God with a good plan. Now, not every single aspect or component of what happens is good. In fact, a lot of what's happening in chapter 5 is bad. Slavery is bad. Okay, just in case you weren't sure, it's bad. Uh, this harsh treatment is bad. This injustice is bad. Like we're, we're not suggesting any of this is good. But here's what is happening is God is taking all of the things that are broken and marred by sin in the world and he is working them together for a good purpose and a good result. In the same way that he's doing that in Exodus 5, he is doing that in your life and in mine. And maybe, maybe, maybe as you hear me say that, you think of a particular New Testament verse. I know it takes me to a particular New Testament verse. Many of you could quote this uh, right now, but Romans 8, 28. Where Paul says, and, I, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a phenomenal verse. This is an incredible verse. If you don't know this verse, you should know this verse and you should memorize this verse. And we should reference it often and come back to it over and over and over again. However, here's what I need us to understand about this. This is not a proof text stating that God is making everything in our life without worry or hassle or concern. In fact, here's the context for Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul is talking about future glory. Why is he talking about future glory? Because everything in the present is super messed up and broken. He's saying creation is groaning under the weight of sin. We we can't even utter words when we pray because we're just so distraught. 
I mean, that's bleak. And, and so it's in that that he says, but, but, but. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So listen to me. Listen to me. God is a good God who is working out his good plan. And it will rarely work out the way that you and I think that it will. Let me put this to you in another way. God is good, period. God is good, period. Now, we begin to get into some really, um, or maybe step out onto some really slippery slopes when you and I want to tie God's goodness to the circumstances in our lives. When I want to make God's, good, God's goodness conditioned to whether or not life is going well for me. And so here's what this sounds like. God is good if God is good, when God is good, because, and we make God's goodness conditional. And so it's not just God is good. And also he has done this. God is good only because he's done this. And that, that, that's what we do with God's, God's goodness. And so we start saying things like, well, God is good when he heals me of my sickness or my disease. God is good when he provides for me in the midst of financial struggle and hardship. God is good when he takes me out of the pit of despair and depression and lifts me to this, uh, the, the, this place of light. God is good when he cures me from cancer, when he heals my marriage, when my kids are walking faithfully uh, with, with him. God is good when, when he protects me from a bully at school school or a jerk at work. But here's the million dollar question. What if that doesn't happen? What if that doesn't happen? Is God no longer good? Right? I mean, like, does God cease to be good because it's conditioned on whether or not he works in a particular manner? Like what, what happens if I, I'm, what, what happens if I or a family member or my child isn't healed from cancer, but they die? Like what, what, what happens if, if, if I'm not lifted from the, the pit of depression, but, but I sink deeper and deeper and it gets darker and harder and I waffle and waver with what to do. What happens if my financial struggles don't get better? They get worse and plunged into financial ruin. What happens if my husband or my wife, we don't restore our marriage, but they leave what happens if my kids don't walk closely with Jesus but walk away? What happens? Is God still good? Yes. Yes. He's working out a plan and we can't see it all. I don't know. I don't know the specifics of why it's so hard. I don't know why it's so pressing. But I know, here's what I do know, is that God is a good God who is working a good plan through this. When I say good, I don't mean that God makes it easy or favorable. I mean that there's righteous, uh, righteousness and it's glorious. So here's my question for you. That's heavy, isn't it, right? Here's my question. Will you trust that God is working out his good plan even though it isn't playing out the way that you think it is or the way it should? Will you trust that God is working out his good plan even though it isn't playing out the way you thought it should? Here's the final thing. Look at verse 22 and 23. 
says this, and Moses turned to the Lord and said, and then we tend to fixate on what Moses says here uh, because it's pretty bold. And maybe that's a really generous, gracious way of saying what's going on here. But he says, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Whoa. Here's, here's what I want you to get. In terms of dark days, I think this is really the response to dark days. But notice what Moses is doing here. He is petitioning God for answers. And so in one sense, right, in one sense, Moses has already forgotten God's purposes and plan, right? He, why am I here? And God's like, seriously, have you already forgotten? Like, what is wrong with you, Moses? I have told you repeat. I mean, but God didn't say any of that, did he? God's not saying that. But in one sense, Moses has already forgotten. But in as much as we could just hammer Moses on this, I think what we see in the first part of verse 22 is just incredibly helpful and profound. Because when all of the Israelites went running to Pharaoh to save them, where does Moses go? Not only does he go to the Lord, but he goes and he faces God. Then Moses, man, you might want to underline these next four words turned to the Lord, right? He is facing God. He is confused. He is disappointed. He is angry and he is praying. Oh, how we need to hear that because far too often those are the items and things like them that will drive us from prayer when they should drive us to prayer. In fact, you could say that this is one of the ways that suffering and struggle and difficulty in our life is actually God's kindness to us, is that it drives us back to the Lord in prayer. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, okay, but I'm willing to bet that your prayer life is most fervent when things are hard. Am I lying? Right? I mean, it's just like we've all been there. We know that to be true. Here's my question. And maybe this question begins to change how you and I begin to think differently about suffering in our life. In this, in this, is this God being cruel or is this God being kind? Now think about this for a minute. If what I need most is God's presence and he allows something hard that pushes me back to him, which is what I need more than anything else. Is that God's cruelty or is that God's kindness and grace? See, God is giving me what I need, not necessarily what I want, but he's giving me what I need. Will you choose to accept what God gives to you? He's petitioning God for answers and God is giving him an answer. In fact, let me just point you briefly to chapter six, verse one. Here's what God responds or begins to respond to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God is like, man, again, just again, I'm telling you what I've told you from the beginning. What I continue to tell you, I'm going to deliver you. I haven't deviated one iota, one fraction, one bit from what I told you I was going to do. And see, this leads us back that amidst the the waves of disappointment, the seasons of struggle and hardship, that we have to come back time and again to the consistency of the cross of Jesus. To be reminded that God is for us and not against us, that Jesus suffered so that we can be reconciled to God, not alienated from God. 
Hear me, loved ones. Hear me when I say this. Your greatest need, my greatest need, the greatest need that you and I have is spiritual. It's spiritual. It's tied to our sinfulness. And the greatest need that we have is that God would remedy that, that God would cure that, that God would fix that. Our greatest need is spiritual. And so if life, right, if my life has to destroy me in order to spare my soul, that's actually what's best for me. If life is brutal, but it brings me back to the, to the cross and I'm throwing myself upon Jesus, then that is what is best. No, I know, I know some of you are getting crushed by life. And if you're really honest, you're, you're, you're shocked and surprised by it. Where did this come from? I didn't sign up for this, man. I, I can't do this. And yet I think it's God's kindness that reveals our limitations that we quit trying to save ourselves and, and would instead throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't do it. To which Christ is saying, I know that's the point and it's why I've done it. This harsh slavery has Israel on its heels. And yet in the midst of this, God is going to work profoundly. And I would just encourage you to hold that truth in your life. And maybe right now life has you on your heels. And I would just encourage you that God is on the verge of working profoundly. And if you find yourself in that desperate place, right, the means of God's grace is found in us petitioning and pursuing the Lord in brokenness and humility. Amen? Amen. Now, I can't think, I can't think of a better way for us to respond to this than to move directly towards the Lord's table.